Hi everyone, this is Carmen Miksha and Sophia Miksha, your hosts of Seeds of Sunshine, a mother-daughter multi-generational podcast filled with laughter, wisdom and advice. Sophia is a sophomore in high school in the IB program, a runner, a piano player and a sister. I have a BA and MA degree in English and have published two poetry books and a tennis book, which you can find on Amazon or on my website, CarmenMixaBooks.com. I am also a marathon runner and the broker CEO of Dynamic Real Estate, my own company. So if you're looking to buy or sell a home with me in the Sacramento or Bay Area regions, please visit my website, DynamicSacramentoHomes.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We promise to sprinkle seeds of sunshine once a week to elevate your lives and dreams through better communication between generations. Vic Ferrari, author of NYPD, Through the Looking Glass, stories from inside America's largest police department, the NYPD's flying circus, cops, crimes, and chaos, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division, and NYPD Law and Disorder is a retired 22-year member of the New York City Police Department who refuses to write in chronological order. With no formal training or Harvard degree, Fix managed to write four behind-the-scenes books about his former employer with remarkable attention to detail combined with a sarcastic flair Vic exposes the good, the bad, and the ugly of America's largest police department. Welcome to Seas of Sunshine, Vic. I am honored and grateful to have you on. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to try to behave today, Vic. <laughs> we should all behave. Uh, that's right. And before we start our conversation, I always um, have a quote and a joke that matches um, our conversation. And the quote is by Rudolf Giuliani, who said, it's about time law enforcement got as organized as organized crime. <laughs> if anybody would know it was Rudy, because before Rudy was the mayor of the city of New York. Rudy was a federal prosecutor for the Southern District of New York. And Rudy prosecuted, I mean, Rudy basically decimated the mafia in the New York City area as we know it. He had several high profile cases, the uh, the commission case, the pizza connection case, the windows case. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And over that time period, while Rudy was a prosecutor, he basically put the upper echelon of the mafia in prison for decades. Wow, fascinating. And the joke, uh, maybe you know the answer. Why did the police arrest the turkey down the road? I have no idea. Because it had been suspected of foul play. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's cute. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, so... To me, it's very fascinating, Vic, because you have turned, you became an author. So you worked for over 20 years, right, in the New York City Police Department. And then what made you decide to become an author? I was bored out of my mind. I retired from the NYPD after a wonderful 20-year career. I moved down to Florida. And I became a police officer in Florida for a short period of time. And that didn't work out because the differences 
from being a detective working in America's largest police department to coming to a small town in Florida and going back on the road and, and, and handling DUIs and domestic violence. It wasn't for me. So I re-retired. I was bored out of my mind. And at the request of friends and family, they said, you know, you got all these wild stories and you had an interesting career. You should start writing down some of these stories. And I did. I wrote um, the NYPD Through the Looking Glass and the book started selling and it started picking up traction. And then I wrote another book and another book. And before you know it, I'm, I'm working on my seventh book right now. And they're selling and I get to go on these shows and radio shows and podcasts and meet people like yourself who are nice enough to put me on your platforms to promote my book. So it's kind of morphed into a second career. That is incredible. So how about uh, why did you choose a career in law enforcement to begin with? Oh, I was born to do it. Um, I knew what I wanted to do by the time I was like five years old. Uh, when I early on in life, my grandfather went out to get the newspaper in a snowstorm, and about a half hour later, two cops brought him home. He had broken his leg, and they brought him home. And I just was looking at these two cops in these uniforms, and I'm like, "Who are these guys?" And then my mom used to take me to the movie theater that was around the corner from the police station, and I used to run up to the police cars and talk to the cops. And you know, I, growing up in New York City. This, you got police cars riding, you know, racing by with the lights and sirens all the time. So I knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. That is incredible, Vic, because I talked to another guest. Um, she's an actress and it was the same for her around five, six years old. She knew that's all she wanted to do, you know, just act and uh, be in theater. Um, so that is always amazing when someone can figure out early on in their life what their career will be. Oh, yeah. My parents wanted to kill me because they wanted me to go to college. And in high school, I was not taking high school seriously. And then when I graduated high school, it was like a two-year gap before I'd be eligible to become a, a member of the New York City Police Department. And, uh, you know, my parents, they were they, like, they didn't know what to do with me. You know, I was going through all these part-time jobs. My father wanted me to become an electrician, and I would have none of it. And luckily, it worked out for me. Wonderful. And um, do cops, since I, I, I said that joke, do cops play practical jokes on each other? <laughs> and all, if so, what kind of jokes? Time. Yeah? Oh, all the time. I mean, early on, I mean, when I was a rookie cop, the old timers used to play tricks on us all the time. Um if you had, if you were answering the phones in the station house, I mean, they just one prank phone call after the next. And then I remember like early on, later on in my career, when I was in uniform, we'd watch like a radio car, like our friends would go into the station house to get something to eat for an hour. And we would run up to their police car, break into the car and pour cornstarch down the air conditioning vents and then put the AC on high. So when they got into the radio car, they'd start the car and it would blow all over them. <laughs> there was a guy, there was a short guy in our locker room who used to take his boots off every day and hang them up on top of his locker to air out. And we crazy glued the top, the, the bottom of his boots to the top of his locker. So you had this little short guy on his tippy toes trying to pull his boots off. 
So he wound up having to get a knife and slice off a, a section of heel off his boot. And he was too cheap to buy new boots. So we waddled around for six months until <laughs> another, another pair of boots. Another time a cop had played a prank on me and I went to a pet store and I bought a hundred crickets in a plastic bag. And I broke into his car and I tore open the bag and I dumped the crickets in the back seat and I slammed the door and scared the hell out of him driving home. And he wound up having to sell his car because even after he sprayed the car for bugs, the crickets kept breeding. So he had to get rid of them. Wow, Vic. <laughs> That's quite some pranking. <laughs> oh, it's nonstop. <laughs> and... Um... What is the strangest thing that's ever happened to you while you were a police officer? There, there are so many strange things that happened. But one of the earliest was when, when I was in the police academy, they, they took each class to the morgue because we were going to deal with death at some point in our careers. And they wanted you to see it up close and personal. And they wanted you to see how the process worked with the medical examiner's office. So my police academy instructor marched 30 of us over to Bellevue Hospital to, to see an autopsy. And I, all I knew was from what I saw on television, like an episode of that 1970s show Quincy, where there was a doctor in a white coat standing over a table. Well, a lot of people die in Manhattan, you know, natural causes, sometimes unnatural, and they have to go for an autopsy. And we got, we went into the basement and it was huge down there. And it was like a Jiffy Lube, like they had like eight bays going and they were doing like seven or eight autopsies at once. And I mean, it, it was wild, like between each, between each table or slab, you had a produce scale where they were taking organs out of people and weighing them. And there'd be somebody with a clipboard writing it down. And, you know, they were using um, the same thing that you use to cut mu muffler pipe. They were soaring the back of people's skulls and pulling their faces off and removing their brain. It was like something out of a horror movie. And I'm saying to myself, Jesus, I hope I don't have to come here that, here that often. But yeah, that that was like the biggest shock early on in my career. Wow, very interesting. And um, what it's like to be at the crime scene, uh, Vic? Well, uh, uh, well, when you're in uniform, right, and say you're the first one that walks into a homicide or a shooting, you you want to. I mean, it's, if the person is deceased, you you let the uh, the paramedics come, and they're going to say, "Yeah, he's dead. There's no need to remove this person to the hospital." So now you don't want to touch anything. You, you don't want to handle anything unless you absolutely have to. You want the detectives to come and then the crime scene technicians to come and process the area. Anyone who's around that might have witnessed, you start getting their information. Even if they tell you, no, I didn't see anything, you get their information anyway, because sometimes people just don't want to get involved. And later on, when approached by the detectives, they'll change their tune. Um, you know, especially early on in your career, you just you keep your ears open and your mouth shut. You just you do what you're told and you try not to ruin or contaminate the crime scene. Yes, just like you see in the movies, right? <laughs> oh, I've seen people get yelled at like in apartments of a homicide or something. And before cell phones, you'd watch somebody go over to grab the phone. And so I'm like, what are you doing? Like, get the hell out of here. Like, some of those old time detectives that knew they would do, and they would basically throw everybody out of the room or tell, listen, I don't care if, if, you know, the chief of detectives shows up, do not let anybody in here. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And uh, 
can you tell us about some of your more uh, interesting arrests that you made? Oh, I, I mean, it, during the course of my 20-year career, I made over 600 arrests and I was involved in thousands. I mean, say you and I worked together and you took the arrest. I mean, I've had so many. I mean, the vast majority of my arrests were in the auto crime division where I was a detective. I'll, I'll tell you a wild story. Um, one day, my partner and I were driving around and we see we go. We used to go. We used to check these uh, parking lots for stolen vehicles. And I found this stolen Toyota Land Cruiser. So I had the car dusted for fingerprints. And I'll never forget in the back of this Land Cruiser was a large dog crate and a hunting magazine. So I had the car processed for prints, had the car towed to the pound. And I called the owner up and I says, hey, listen, I, said, I found your uh, stolen Land Cruiser. You can go pick it up at the pound. And he goes, did you find my dog? And I said, no, there was no dog in there. What happened? And he says, well, he goes, my wife and I have a house in the country. We came back after a weekend in the country. We were unloading our stuff from the truck. We had our dog in the cage. I left the car double parked and running. Someone jumped into the driver's seat and took off with my truck. I says, well, no. I says, I didn't get your dog back. I says, but you could pick up your truck. I go, I'll tell you what, it's a shot in the dark. Let me see what I could do. So at the time, um, my friend worked in the fingerprint uh, division, the latent print division. Fingerprints are submitted by, they go in a pecking order. So it's like homicides, robberies, burglaries, the way the fingerprints are fed into the machine to see if there's a match. So I called my friend up and I said, listen, I got a stolen car case. I know it's not a big deal. I says, if it's slow down there, can you get my prints moved up? He goes, yeah, I'll take care of it. I went to high school with this guy. I was the best, friend, best man at his wedding. He submits the prints about a few days later. He goes, I got a hit on your prints. So it was this, um, this street urchin kind of guy. He was a crackhead. We call them road pirates. He's like not a professional criminal. He's like a drug addict opportunist. So if you left your door open, he might come into your house. He'll break into your car. He'll steal your change. He's more of a nuisance. So the guy was a street person. He didn't really have an address. So what I did was I filled out a wanted card and I submitted it. A warrant card attaches to your fingerprints or NICID number, meaning once you, if you get arrested, I'll get a notification, hey, this person just got arrested in the Bronx or this person just got arrested in Manhattan. It's not to detain them, but it gives the detective the notification that, hey, the guy you're looking for just got picked up. So you've got a day to get down to court to try to pull them out before they see the judge or after they see the judge. My partner and I ran down to court. And the funny thing was his case got dismissed. So he was walking out of the courthouse and we grabbed him, rearrested him. I brought him into the station house and I showed him photos of the car. And I go, did you steal this car? No. You sure? Yeah. Were you ever in this car? I'm trying to lock him into a story that he never touched that car. Finally, he goes, Jesus Christ, I would never in that car. Why? So I held up the paperwork. I said, your fingerprints were found in that car. So he's like, oh, shit. So I said, listen. Here's the deal with your record. You're going upstate this time. You're probably looking at a year or two in upstate. I said, if you tell me what happened to that dog, I'll talk to the district attorney and I'll see if I can get you on Rikers Island for 90 days or something. I says, but if you don't want to cooperate, I'm not going to go to bat for you. He goes, yeah, I stole the truck. I didn't know. And, and it was like a sad tale. He's like, I, I stole this truck. I thought I was going to get a lot of money for it, but he didn't have connections to chop shops. So basically he was running from garage to garage. No one wanted to deal with him. He says, I found the dog in the back. He goes, I threw it on a leash. He goes, I walked around. He goes, I got 20 bucks for it. I says, do you remember where you sold it? He goes, yeah, kind of. So we went back, we threw him in the car. We drive up to this neighborhood. 
And he goes, yeah, I think it's that building over there. So he's sitting in the back seat handcuffed and we're just, we're waiting. An hour later, this woman comes bouncing out of the building. He goes, that's the dog. So <laughs> we approached the woman and, you know, she didn't want to give up the dog. And I'm like, look, lady, I don't know what to tell you. I realized that he burns and he sold you this dog for 20 bucks. He says, but this is someone's pet. They've had it for a couple of years. They want their dog back. She was really upset. She didn't want to part with the dog, but eventually we talked her out of it. So we, we throw the dog in the back seat with him and the dog is licking his face. And he goes, how much did that dog cost? And I said about six or $7,000. It was a professional hunting dog. And he goes, and I know that I would have never told you guys. So I, uh, we got the dog back to the owner. He was happy. We got the guy, um, the criminal, he wound up getting like 90 days or a year. So he didn't go upstate. He did a couple of months on Rikers Island. He was happy. And everything worked out. So every now and then, you get, you, you know, you get a good story. That is uh, an incredible story. Were, were the dog owners really, really happy and grateful for what you're going out of your way to help them? He was. And he actually showed up in court to press charges, which a lot of times people, especially, this guy was like a high profile attorney. A lot of times they won't show up. But he kept his word. He came down to court and signed the documents and testified. Wow, what a story, Vic. I just feel like I'm on a movie set here with you. <laughs> yeah, it's like an episode of Law and Order, but I'm, I'm, I'm speeding it up. You don't have to wait an hour to get to the punchline. That's right. That's right. I get it right away. Um, and speaking of that, of movies, did you ever meet celebrities while you were a member of the NYPD? Yeah, in my book, The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos, there's a chapter called Rubbing Elbows where, I mean, if you're a cop in New York City, especially if you're in Manhattan quite a bit, you're going to run into famous people. Um, New York City, I mean, is the backdrop for a lot of movies. The NYPD actually has a unit called the Movie TV Unit, which assigns cops to movie sets to make sure there's not a problem with parking or no one messes with the stars of the movie. So we would drive around and you'd see a movie set. and We would approach, you know, the people that worked on the set and like, Hey, what are you filming and who's in it? And they would tell us. And then sometimes we get to meet these people. So yeah, I did, I did get to meet a lot of famous people. Wow. That's incredible. And um, you were working during 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at Ground Zero? Yeah, um, I was I was supposed to have court that day, which is several blocks away from the courthouse. And um, before I could get down to court, the planes, you know, hit the twin towers. We were told to get into uniform and uh, and stand by. And by one one thirty in the afternoon, myself and you know about a hundred people from my unit, we were down there walking around, and it was like something out of a movie, like a horror movie. Um, you know, there was debris flying all over the place. It was dark because the closer you got to um, Ground Zero the more debris that was blowing around and that toxic dust that it was difficult for like the sunlight to penetrate through the particles. So it was like a twilight haze. Um, I remember walking down, I think it was Broadway. Everything was covered in that dust. And we saw thousands upon thousands of pairs of women's high heel shoes all over the street because you had all these women that walk, worked in the Wall Street area or in the Twin Towers. When they were fleeing, they just took off their high heels and threw them in the street and took off. It was it was something out of a science fiction movie. And I was down there from about um, 1.30 in the afternoon. I didn't go home till about 5.30 at night. 
uh, we're told to go home, run your clothes through a washing machine, because even then they knew that there could be dangers with, with associated with that those particles. And um, I was going down there for the first week or so. Then they pulled us back. And I spent a lot of time at the dump. They were taking the debris down to this dump out in Staten Island where we... Since I worked in auto crime, they were using us to like open up the um, the crushed cars and stuff to make sure no one had been trapped in there. Mm -hmm. Wow, what experience! Um, and to go back to your uh, novels, um, what's the main theme in them? Since you you said you're working on your seventh one. Yeah, so my books, I can't write in chronological order. So what I do is all my books are chapters with a theme or, and then there's several stories in it, be it if there's a chapter about police corruption, there's three or four stories about police corruption. Um, there's a chapter in one of my books about practical jokes. There's chapters of different, like different cases that I worked on. So they make great travel books. You know, it's not heavy reading. It's just short stories about things that occurred during my time in the New York City Police Department. Oh, incredible. Um, and since we are getting close to the end of the episode, we always love to sprinkle seeds of sunshine for our listeners. What would be your seeds of sunshine, Vic? Seeds of sunshine. Okay. Any day above day, any day above ground is a good day. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, since you're from Romania, yes. I'll tell you that story. So I, my old partner parents were from Romania. They had migrated to the United States. He used to go there on vacation when he was a little boy. He kind of knew his cousins and family over there, but it was just through, you know, a two-week trip here and there. So he's graduating high school and his parents tell him, you're going back to Romania. You're going to go to Romania. You're going to stay with your cousins and you're going to go to medical school because there you could attend medical school right out of high school. And he says, I don't want to do this. Like his Romanian was average at best you know wasn't it's a second language he didn't grow up there he knew a little bit about the culture you know it'd be like sending me to Italy right so he goes over there and you know his relatives are nice to him but there's a language barrier and what he winds up doing is he quickly realizes he can make money selling things there so he's got his friends in the united states selling us uh, shipping over blue jeans and things in the united states that they can't get in romania so he's kind of got like a black market thing going right so he starts he starts medical school and he's kind of the outsider because all his classmates they're romanian true and true and he's kind of the outsider and they're kind of making jokes about him at his expense and he says so the first couple of months, he goes, they're going to do autopsy and dissect. A, they're going to dissect body parts. He says, so they go into this basement of this Romanian medical school. And he says, you know, he gets a leg. The guy next to him's got an arm and the doctor's up there explaining what to do and everything. And he goes, you know, it was disgusting, but I got through it. I take off my glove and the instructor goes, come here. And he goes, yeah, he goes, I want you to collect all these body parts and put it in this wheelbarrow and take it down into the basement and throw them in the incinerator. He goes, are, are you kidding me? Like he said, like, he almost like he, he didn't hear him correctly. And the guy goes, yeah, that's what I want you to do. He goes, so I got, I throw on another set of gloves and I'm throwing arms and legs 
in this wheelbarrow. He goes, and the arms and legs are sticking out of the wheelbarrow, going in all different directions. He goes, it looked like something out of a horror movie. He goes, I go into the basement and, you know, there's some old guy that works the, the incinerator. And he goes, the guy is throwing the arms and legs in this thing. And he goes, I can't do this. He goes, <laughs> I was on the phone with my parents that night. And I was back in the United States a week later. And then he became a member of the New York City Police Department and became a really good detective. <laughs> what a story, Vic. So this would translate as a seeds of sunshine, you know, showing that what your parents have planned for you might not work out. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. That blaze your own path. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's why we're a multi-generational podcast. And our, our goal is to bridge that uh, communication, you know, and those expectations that, you know, we as a parent put on our children. And it just shows how important it is to find our own path in life, you know? Definitely. Yeah. And how can listeners get a hold on you, Vic? And how they can they connect with you on social media and buy your sure. books? Sure. So just go to Amazon, go to the book section and type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car. My Amazon library will come up. All my books are paperback. They're 10 bucks. They make great stocking stuffers. Um, the $2.99 ebook download. And if they want to get a hold of me for an interview or have a question, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. Wonderful, Vic. I am truly honored. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And I wish you the very best and to keep writing. Thank you so much. Seeds of Sunshine is a proud supporter of Sacramento Youth Center and 50% of your donations are going directly to our local branch. To contribute and support our podcast, please use the coffee app, which you can find in our show notes. It is greatly appreciated. Wishing you a great week full of sunshine. Thanks so much for listening, sharing, and reviewing our podcast wherever you listen to. And if you have some great wisdom and advice and wish to be a guest on Seeds of Sunshine, please message me on social media at Carmen Mixa, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And last but not least, remember that we will have a monthly drawing for cool prizes to reward our top listeners and supporters who share and review Seeds of Sunshine. Goodbye for now.